Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called, Would Jesus Have Marched? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 5th, 2017. This is a guest essay by Ruth Everhart, a Presbyterian pastor for 20 years currently serving a small church in Bethesda, Maryland. She's also the author of two spiritual memoirs, the first of which is called Ruined, named a 2017 Book of the Year by Christianity Today, about her rape as a student at a Christian college. And then secondly, Chasing the Divine in the Holy Land, 2012, about her pilgrimage to Israel and Palestine. For more about Ruth, you can see RuthEverhart.com. <clears throat> During an election cycle, we citizens become familiar with stump speeches. These are the talking points that political candidates repeat at every campaign stop. If the speakers are particularly adept, the refrains they use will echo even after they have moved on to the next stop. Indeed, certain phrases hopefully become associated with a particular face and voice and agenda, so that even fragments of the speech will retain the power to call to mind the candidate's entire platform. The Sermon on the Mount this week is Jesus' stump speech, if you will, and the Beatitudes are nine refrains that echo long after Jesus has moved on. Picture the blessed are statements on placards, borne aloft in the sea of faces around Jesus. These fragments form the context for the gospel this week about salt and life, which seem simple enough to be campaign slogans, but which are followed up with the confounding exhortation about righteousness. Jesus says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Given Jesus' attitude toward the Pharisees, that verse alone is worthy of much study. Is he referring to a more narrow fixation on the law or a broader interpretation? Is he referencing the outward keeping of regulations or the inward attitude? of the heart. At any rate, blessing and righteousness are the bookends to the salt and light passage. These two words give body and substance to what seem to be such simple phrases. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not you will be the salt of the earth, but you are now and here salt. Not you will be the light of the world, but you are now and here light. Who is a Jesus addressing here? Who is the salt of the earth? Those who are humble, those who mourn, those who are meek, and those who thirst after doing what's right. Salt creates thirst, does it not? The righteous are blessed to thirst after doing what is right. They are salty, and so they thirst. 
And who is Jesus calling the light of the world? Those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, and those who receive abuse for standing up for what's right. Righteousness is a form of light, is it not? The righteous are blessed to show forth purity and peace as they stand up for what's right. They shed light through their actions. <clears throat> Stump speeches may seem a sour topic right now, a far cry from the gospel and its good news. You might say that our nation is in the midst of a particularly contentious political season, one shedding more heat than light. You might even say we're embroiled in this season. Perhaps that word tickles my fancy because something embroiled begs for seasoning. It begs for salt, and surely it makes us thirsty to do what is right. Perhaps the most difficult part of the passage this week is that it cycles us back to righteousness, which we understand in the abstract, but struggle with in the particulars. Any disciple worth her salt knows that righteousness is the goal. It forms our telos, that thing we drive toward. But how will keeping the Pharisaic law drive us toward righteousness? Jesus does not elaborate. The answer must be found in salt and light, these elemental things that are so multifaceted. Even though they are simple, there's nothing innocuous about either element. Salt preserves, salt flavors, but salt can also sting and burn and abrade. Light dispels darkness, light sheds illumination, but light can also blind either temporarily or even permanently. Christians want to be salt and light, but we struggle to know how and when and to what extent. Take, for example, our recent political theater. After the pomp and circumstance of the inauguration of Donald J. Trump as the 45th President of the United States came the Women's March on Washington, with sister marches around the country and, indeed, the entire globe. For some marchers, this was a way to be salt and light, while for others, the marchers were nothing but abrasion. So should we spend more time talking about salt and light, or more time marching and clarifying the messages we carry on our placards? Which is easier for our churches to do? Which is a more direct response to the times we find ourselves in? Would Jesus have marched? Would Jesus have blessed the marchers? How does the gospel improve the flavor of our life together as followers of Jesus, as congregations, as a nation? What if we weren't afraid of the sting of salt? What if we spent less time arguing about the design of our lampstands, as really so much Christian talk amounts to? and spent more time shedding light on the darkness that surrounds us. If you intend to be a salty, well-lit disciple, be advised to reread Jesus' stump speech. The waving placards of blessed are 
might seem quite inspiring until you realize that Jesus actually means business. This righteousness is not for the faint of heart. What Jesus has in mind, in fact, might be stinging, blinding righteousness. Would Jesus have marched? That's a guest essay by Pastor Ruth Everhart of Bethesda, Maryland. <clears throat> For books this week, review, we review an important bestseller. It's a autobiography by Bruce Springsteen. It's called Born to Run. New York, Simon & Schuster, 2016. This book is 528 pages. This is a guest book review by our former Journey with Jesus music editor, David Werther. Adele read romance novels, listened to hit songs on the radio, and worked as a legal secretary. Douglas, a bull of a man, suffered from mental illness, downed a six-pack of beer every night and worked on an assembly line in a Ford motor plant. Adele was fiercely devoted to Douglas, who, succumbing to paranoia, would even so doubt her faithfulness and wonder if one of their son's friends was a Russian spy. Adele encouraged their son's musical interests, helping him get his first guitar. Douglas was jealous of his son and detested his long hair. When the boy lay in bed, recuperating from a motorcycle accident, the father took advantage of the opportunity and brought in a barber to cut off the offending locks. His son retaliated by telling his father for the first and only time that he hated him. Suffering from mental illness like his father, in his case, depression, Bruce Springsteen has no trouble channeling sadness through his music. And, thanks to the indomitable spirit he shares with his mother, he never lets sadness suffocate romance. Springsteen believes that the best music combines both sadness and happiness. Heartbreak and joy are not the only tensions Bruce Springsteen lives with. There's also the strain of feeling out of place, both in the blue-collar world he grew up in and in the 1960s counterculture. The Durham culture is no more acceptable to him than his hometown's intolerance. A firm believer in the magic of a tight-knit man Springsteen rejects musical democracy. He wants a great band, but insists on being the boss. And so he is. The buck stop, starts and stops with him. And then there's the turbulent spiritual undercurrent. Springsteen begins the last chapter of his autobiography with some lines from My Father's House, Calling and calling so cold and alone, shining across this dark highway where our sins lie unatoned. He then describes a visit to his old neighborhood where words he once chanted in church come to mind. <clears throat> 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. The juxtaposition of the Father's and the failings bring us back to some remarks Springsteen makes at the beginning of this memoir. He writes, As funny as it sounds, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. He remains one of my fathers, though, as with my own father, I no longer believe in his godly power. I believe deeply in his love, his ability to save, but not to damn. Springsteen notes that the search for redemption is a recurring theme in his work. This quest, part of his backstory, helps set this autobiography apart from and ahead of a myriad of other musical memoirs. I think it's why we run with him and why in the best music, heartbreak never buries happiness. And so from his famous song, Born to Run, We're going to get to that place where we really want to go. And we'll walk in the sun. But till then, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. That's a guest book review by our former music editor, David Werther. It's an autobiography by Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run. For movies this week, I review an important film from Syria. It's called The White Helmets from 2016. In the last five years, 400,000 people have been killed in the Syrian civil war and millions more displaced. This 40-minute Netflix documentary features the volunteer group that works in the areas where Russian and the Assad regime have bombed the country into apocalyptic oblivion. The White Helmets, or the Syrian Civil Defense, was founded back in 2013. Their 2,900 volunteers work in 120 centers across the country as first responders. This film interviews several of the volunteers who explain their work and includes horrifying cell phone footage of actual bombings that are followed by their emergency responses. Explains One White Helmet any human being, no matter who they are or what side they are on, if they need our help, it's our duty to help them. All lives are precious and valuable. The White Helmets were featured on the cover of Time magazine back in October 2016. It's not mentioned in the film But the White Helmets are funded primarily by Western governments and organizations. The White Helmets claim to be an impartial and non-political humanitarian NGO, whereas Assad and Russia accuse them of being pro-rebel. This film is in Arabic with English 
subtitles. <clears throat> Once again, the title of the film, The White Helmets, 2016. It's from and about the war in Syria. And finally, for poetry this week, one of my all-time favorite poems, a poem that my wife found and passed along to me. It's called Otherwise. It's by Jane Kenyon, who lived from 1947 to 1995. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day, just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 5th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.